Welcome to Queer Thinking, a podcast where we unpack queer identity, dive into issues, and explore all the things that make us unique, connected, and creative. Our LGBTQIA community is really special. We represent all the wonderful colors of the rainbow. And although we come together as one to support, uplift, and celebrate our united community, we're all very different. And each of us has our own story to tell. From the provocative and heartfelt to the hilarious and heart-wrenching, over the next eight episodes, no topic is off limits, as we invite a dynamic assortment of LGBTQIA guests onto the show to open up and share their stories. Queer Thinking is produced on unceded Aboriginal land. We pay our respects to elders past and present, as well as brother boys and sister girls within the rainbow community. This podcast is a collaboration between Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras and Joy, Australia's rainbow community media organisation. For more information on episodes, as well as upcoming queer thinking events, visit mardigras.org.au forward slash podcast. Hey there, I'm Triana Butler, the host of Queer Thinking. Sport has often excluded LGBTQIA participants, with many sporting codes having homophobia and transphobia deeply embedded in their players, teams, and fans. Because of this, a lot of LGBTQIA identifying sports people don't come out. However, there are a growing number of sports people who are taking a stand and publicly coming out, from gold medalist diver Matthew Mitchum to New Zealand's Laurel Hubbard, a transgender weightlifter who completed at the 2021 Tokyo Olympic Games. These people are helping to change the landscape of sports in Australia and around the world. In this episode of Queer Thinking, we chat with Australian athletes who've come out as their true selves. I'll be joined by Dominic Clark, a trampoline gymnast who represented Australia at the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Also joining me will be Alex Blackwell, a former professional Australian cricket player playing for New South Wales and Australia as a specialist batsman. She was the first woman in Australian cricket to come out. Finally, I'll be joined by Rudy Jean Rigg, a seasoned badminton player, content creator and you may have seen on TikTok Rainbow History Class. Rudy is about to launch Trans Athletica, a docuseries exploring the unique barriers faced by trans people in sport. Remember, if any of the topics discussed bring up negative feelings for you, there is support available. For a list of LGBTQIA support services, head to mardigras.org.au and click through to the support page. Don Clark, welcome. It's great to have you here. No, thank you so much for having me. So when did you first start getting into sport? Um, so I first started getting into sport. My first sport that I actually did was gymnastics. So I have ADHD and my parents, because I was jumping off everything, stairs, walls, everything that just wasn't safe that I shouldn't have been doing, um, they decided that it was better to put me into kinder gym because it was safe. I could jump off blocks. I could jump into a pit. I could roll around. I could do everything I wanted to do in a safer environment. Um, and ever since my first kinder gym class as a four-year-old, I just fell in love with the sport. So I went from kinder gym to recreational gymnastics. And then from there, I kind of moved into competitive gymnastics. I did soccer for a two-year stint and I think one of those years I didn't touch the ball at all. So that just wasn't quite for me. Um, so, yeah, since the age of four and now I'm 25, I've just been doing gymnastics. So it's been quite a while now. So before you had come out, were there any other LGBTQIA plus people in sport around you? Um, in gymnastics specifically, um, you know, obviously in the early 2000s, it just wasn't very prevalent to have 
out people. And we didn't have things like social media where people could show their everyday presence and show who they are more than a sports person because what we got to see of sports people was what you know broadcasters chose to show about them. Um, and it was really hard to see authenticity through people when I was growing up as a gymnast, you know, early 2000s. So we actually had um, Jai Wallace, who was a trampolinist like me, who got a silver medal at the 2000 Olympics. He actually identifies as a gay man. Now, I didn't actually know that until the late 2000s, where he also came out as HIV positive. Um, and that was the first instance of somebody within my own sport who identified, you know, as gay or as like in the community. Um, but I didn't really have that coming up as a younger athlete. I remember the first athlete that I saw on television that I identified anything like myself was Matthew Mitchum when he was competing at 2008 Olympics. And he was so proud and such an advocate for himself being, you know, one of the only gay men being out at that time in the 2008 Olympics. And that was finally somebody that I had that I could relate a lot to within my sport and within myself. So at what point in this timeline did you come out? Oh, goodness me. So 2008, how old, how old was I in 2008? I think I was 11. So post that, it took me about four years after that to, to, to come out. I came out when I was 15 to, you know, my close friends and family. You know, I'm very lucky that I have quite a supportive network of people around me. It was also quite easy. Like I, I trained with a lot of girls growing up. So like men's gymnastics and women's gymnastics um, are different in that men's only train with boys and women's only train with girls. But in trampoline, I'm lucky that my squad of athletes was, you know, when I was growing up, majority girls as well. And, you know, as a gay kid, it actually made it a lot easier for me because even though the wider gymnastics community and the high performance gymnastics community is very, very hyper masculine, I was lucky to have that safe space with those girls, you know, growing up. Um, so, yeah, I came out in about 2012 now. So I've been, yeah, I've been out for 10 years. Crazy. So what was it like telling those people that you were, you were gay? Um, look, it's funny. Like I open my mouth and a purse falls out. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I was always like, I love, with, I love women's artistic gymnastics. I've always been happy and dancing and smiling. And, you know, people kind of perceive that as, gay so I had you know I had this identity giving to me before I even kind of had the chance to come out and it's one of those things where I, I kind of wish it wasn't the way that it was where like my coming out was so anticlimactic because people already assumed I kind of wish people didn't assume I wish you know the way that I acted just because I was a little bit feminine didn't you know directly correlate to my sexuality but also it's kind of nice that you know um, when I did come out, everyone was just like, oh, well, that's just Dom. That's just the way that he is and the way that he acts. And just because like who he loves, you know, won't really change our opinion of him because it's not really a massive surprise. So, um, again, I was lucky that I was in an environment for a long time with those girls and with my coach, who was also a female, um, to be able to have that space to be myself. Um, but when I, when I talk about that space, I don't really talk about gymnastics wider. I'm just talking about like within my club and within my squad of close people that I trained with because the wider gymnastics community was very, very different. When I, and when I, when I, t when I talk about coming out, um, cause I came out in 2012, I didn't come out publicly until 2021. I only ever, I only ever came out to the people that I trained with closely and my close family members.
And of course, there shouldn't ever be a need to to come out. We hear people talking about instead of coming out, this idea of inviting in, mm. you know, like only letting in the people who need to know into your world because you don't necessarily have to. Um, by the way, while we're talking about the Tokyo Olympics, congratulations for competing. Thank you so much. We call yeah, it the 2020 you. Tokyo Olympics, even though it happened in 2021. What was that like? Talk me through that whole experience. It was phenomenal. It was a dream come true. You know, it's one of those things where you watch when you're young. I remember watching the women's artistic gymnastics in 2004 in Athens and going, oh my gosh, that's so cool. I want to be able to do that one day. And realizing that I was in a sport that I could, you know, that was my dream and that was all that I ever wanted to do. So I kind of had a narrow focus from when I was a child to now. And, you know, being able to be on that stage and stand on the trampoline and look at those Olympic rings and, you know, have that whole experience was like mind blowing because, you know, sometimes dreams don't come true but sometimes they do and that's really really cool and it took a, a lot of work and a lot of time and I don't like to say sacrifices I don't really like to use that word I don't think anything's ever really a sacrifice I think it's a choice I made lots of choices um um coming into like as an adult it's hard being an athlete in gymnastics because we don't have lots of resources and we don't have lots of funding so all the choices that I made were all worth it like through that period of time so the Olympics once I was there, actually, there was no pressure. It was just a big party. I'd worked really, really hard. I knew that I could do really well. So I just had heaps of fun, soaked up the whole experience, met heaps of real cool people. Um, it was just, yeah, it was honestly a dream come true. I couldn't have gone any better. Actually, it could have. I could have gotten a gold medal, but it was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find it in the Olympic Village? Like, especially as a queer person in, in a country like Japan, what's that environment like? Um, the Olympic Village was really interesting because we were all um, in a big bubble. So the Olympic Village kind of felt like its own little country in itself. Um, and I have, I myself have always, you know, growing up, growing up as quite a feminine gay boy, you kind of stray away from like mas traditionally masculine straight men because you don't really feel like you have that much in common. And, you know, they are kind of... Um, shown as our like oppressors like historically um so you know i have lots of friends who are straight men but also at the same time i still struggle to talk and create like strong connections with straight men but in the olympic village it was actually really really cool because everybody there had something in common and a common passion and that was sport and like i'm a sports lover like i do love gymnastics more than anything else but you know my family's a big rugby family i love the sevens i made lots of friends with the water polo girls and the water polo boys and the basketball boys um and we all had something to talk about and it was really fun being able to create those connections with people beyond my identity and beyond my sexuality it actually felt like a really safe space because i was in this safe high performance sporting space which was really cool so what's it been like for you being an openly gay Olympian? I mean, we've talked about in the actual village, but more broadly. At the Olympics, it was a little bit different because everybody there had a lot of mutual respect for each other because we were all the best at what we did in, in the world. And we were all really interested in each other's sports and what we did. So there was this, you know, air of respect around that, but that's not necessarily the case in sports um, sport is very discriminatory and very judgmental. Um, so I think the reason that I came out at the point of time that I did was because I realized that I had a place of, you know, a place of power and that I could start being an ambassador for people who felt, you know, 
that they were a minority in their environment that should be a safe environment or they can be openly queer and participate in whatever sport that they want and it's not going to be a hindrance to their performance or like whatever level they choose to compete at. Um, I've experienced a lot of personal discrimination in my sport and a lot of that was before I became the, the top athlete in Australia and I think a lot of that has to do with you know the culture within my sport the hypermasculine culture within my sport and I know other sports especially team sports um, it's really hard to be out um, within those environments where it's like very hypermasculine it's a bit of a boys club um, so I think that's kind of the reason that I came out at, at, at the time that I did I was lucky to be you know, one of 186 out athletes at the Olympics. And I think it was something like only 15% of them were men, which I think is a very interesting statistic, which shows, you know, sport still isn't a very like safe space to be um, an out athlete, especially when you look at this. I think there was something like 18,000 athletes that competed at the Olympics and only 186 queer athletes that were open. So when you look at statistics, there's obviously more. They're just not comfortable or safe to be out. Yeah, of course. God, when you put the statistics like that. Um, so, so what is next for you? you is, the next Olympics is, what, now fewer years away than it normally is? Uh, are you in training for the next Olympics? Um, I'm actually currently taking a break from high-performance gymnastics. Um, since I left high school, since I was 18, which was seven years, seven years ago now, um, I did nothing but train all the way through all my holidays, all my Christmases. Um, so I've never really had a significant amount of time off and I've also got passions elsewhere. I do, um, music and I do musical theater and I sing. So I've always been interested in joining Cirque du Soleil. So I think finding myself in a Cirque du Soleil show is my next adventure. Um, I will go back to high performance training at some point. Um, but I'm kind of at a point where I don't need to make a decision just yet. Um, I could come back to gymnastics at the start of next year and I could be ready for Paris or I could get snapped up by Cirque du Soleil um, within the next couple of weeks and I could be in Vegas within the month. But I don't really know what's going to happen and I think it's actually nice for the first time in my life where I can not quite know what's going to happen and that's okay. And The Voice Australia is involved as well? Yes, I just recently, uh, I just recently performed on The Voice Australia I've been a singer for my whole life. I'm lucky that I had a very musical family um, and music was always kind of something that I had for myself outside of gymnastics. I think it's really important as sports people that we, you know, put 100% into our sport and then also have just a little bit extra for something else that you can be passionate about because sport is forever, but also <laughs> our bodies, you never really know what's going to happen. So it's, 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 it's good to have something to take your mind away from that sporting arena. And for me, that was music. Um, and I thought it was a really good time to use the platform that I had coming off the Olympics to show more authenticity. Um, I wanted to show intersectional identities. Um, you know, I have myself as a gymnast, myself as a queer man, myself as a musician, and they're all kind of mixed into one. I don't think they need to be separate. I, I think people should be able to be authentic and be themselves and do whatever they want and, you know, make sure that's okay. So I think me being on that stage as a, as a queer gymnast um, was really powerful. Well, it's been fantastic to hear you talk a little bit about your queer identity here, so we really appreciate that. Let's head across to Rudy now. Rudy, uh, how about you? When did you first start becoming interested in sports? 
Oh, wow. I feel like I've always been been playing sport. I basically, you know, came out the womb with a racket in my hand. Um, I think the story goes that my mom took me in a mere week and a half after she gave birth. So um, into the badminton stadium, that is. But I think I've been holding a racket more realistically at ages two or three. Yeah, I've just always been in the sporting world. (laughs) So what did those early years in sport for you look like? Oh, gosh. Um, A lot of time spent in badminton stadiums, hanging out by the courts, playing with the older kids. And then, you know, I got into training myself. And then by the time I think I was 11, I played for um, Victoria and trying out netball and gymnastics and swimming. And yeah, very, very like Saturdays and Sundays were sports. After school was sports. In in school was sport. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, just 24-7. Well, trans person to trans person, um, I'm, I know as someone who as a kid played basketball and then got real uncomfortable with it around a certain time, um, tr- transitioning and having those kind of feelings can, can be quite awkward. When did you first start your transition? I had what I, I like to frame as a micro transition when I was like 13 and 14. Oh no, like more like 14, 15, 16, sorry. Which which just really involved like telling my other my my trans best friend that I was also trans and then binding my chest in a way that I would never ever ever recommend people to do. So that was the sort of two things that I did during that time. And then I became very ashamed and I, I went sort of backwards and I didn't fully come to terms with who I was until I was 21, just 21 and a half, I think almost. Um, So, you know, when I was 15, it was awful. I just was like, felt very othered and I felt very strange because obviously I did know of say, you know, um, lesbian athletes or bisexual women or gay men who I could see similarities in myself, you know, but it just wasn't the same. So it was very uncomfortable because I thought there was something wrong with me um, in the sporting world. I suppose I sometimes I thought, oh, why, why can't I just be a lesbian? Um, why do I have to feel like I'm not a woman sort of thing? And then by the time I was 21, it, it was uncomfortable in different ways. But um, by that point in my life, I had a, a great queer community and I had learned so much more. So it was a little bit different. So among those people who you had to come out to in your sports teams as you began transitioning, how did they react? How did they find that? I never really came out to um, anyone, I suppose, other than my my family who were involved in, in the sporting community. I think I came out on social media, so anyone that I, you know, had added on Facebook or had on Instagram, they kind of found out that way. I think I sent a message to a few close friends that I'd still had from the badminton world and, and I sent them a me- like a personal message. Um, and then for the wider badminton community, I suppose the first time they would have seen that I was trans, I was part of a event or I suppose a series of events during lockdown called um, Love All Play, which is a badminton term which was just talking about diversity and inclusion. And um, I sort of just, um, you know, the the organiser knew that I was trans and, and reached out to me um, and asked if I'd like to be on this panel. And I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. We're in lockdown. Like it's not as if I've got to walk outside my house tomorrow and um, face the world. So for me, it was quite a comfortable way to sort of go about coming out as a trans non-binary person. Um, 
to the wider badminton community. So have you found that experience transitioning while being in the public eye where there's so much scrutiny? Look, it's been it's been something that I haven't really stopped to think about um, because I've just been honestly very busy being an advocate and, and making content that centres around, you know, bringing people in and, and educating and, and sharing my experiences. And, you know, I, it's never nice to sort of have messages come into your DMs of people telling you awful things. But honestly, unless it's like hundreds and hundreds, in which sometimes it is, it doesn't affect me. Like the words don't really affect me. What does affect me is that now I've become very comfortable with my physical expression of my gender. I do experience street harassment at a far higher rate than I they did before. And it's funny because I've only come to this place of being able to express and live my authentic self because of the work I do. Yet on the street, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a very strange experience to have people yell out that you're disgusting and that you should go and, you know, blah, 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 you know. So it's just, I just try and take it my stride, to be honest, yeah. What do you think the future looks like for transgender athletes in sport? Not just, I mean, we'll start in Australia first, but what do you think the future looks like? Mm. Well, one can only hope that the future of transgender athletes is you know, a safe and supported future. And it's a future that sees all identities being able to not only compete, but succeed, which I think is a very important combination of things. I mean, that's Australia and global. You smashed it out of the park. I don't even need to follow up with the next question. Hey, look, tell me about, you got this new project coming up called Trans Athletica. What's this project about? Tell me all about it. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, I mean, the top line, I suppose, um, thing would be um, Trans Athletica is a Screen Australia funded and TikTok partnered documentary series. It's a 15 part documentary series um, exploring the unique barriers that trans people face in sport. Um, and we submitted this as a pitch to Screen Australia as part of their Every Voice initiative all the way back in July 2021. So it's been a very long time coming. We've got the official series and we're hoping to put out more content sort of around the series um, that's sort of adding to the documentary that we've created. Being like, you know, on the internet and making content, it's my job. So, you know, I host Rainbow History Class and, you know, I talk about being neurodivergent and doing makeup and fashion and stuff on my own sort of social media accounts. Um, But what people don't know is that I have been coaching badminton for 10 years and, you know, I've I've also been a state-level badminton player. Um, My grandma opened what we believe to be the first ever badminton school in Australia and following on from there my you know my mom was a very successful badminton player and coach so you know with sport being such a huge part of my family life and my life in general when I transitioned and that suddenly dropped away it was a very jarring experience to me that I didn't really process at the time and then meeting the team behind Rainbow History Class and and all of the people that I work with now obviously they learnt about me and who I am and what I what I do And so that sort of being trans, being non-binary, gender diverse and playing sport, because we're all quite sporty people anyway, it sort of just made sense, especially, and even back in July, 2021, it just made sense to dive into the sort of this world 
and learn, and try and learn more and sort of unpick those barriers, you know, when it comes to being trans and gender diverse and trying to play sport. What have you learned from other transgender people who are in sport? We learned that it's tough. It's very tough. <laughs> I mean, look, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, I think, I mean, to be really honest, it was actually quite difficult to pe- get people to talk to us because, you know, why would any trans person want to be part of what, you know, at times can be a very traumatizing public barrage of discrimination. Like uh, there's just really no other way for me to just sort of describe that. Um, but, you know, in talking to trans athletes and talking to doctors and scientists and sociologists and social scientists, you know, we learned that it, it's that barriers exist, not just in terms of participation, it, barriers exist when it comes to succeeding on, you know, at pretty much every turn. So for example, issues lie within the world of sporting administration in social, in social situations, just trying to enter the sporting community and then being able to participate, play, train, and then freely succeed at a high level. Um, Because of course, as we know, trans people have been able to compete at the Olympics for some time. However, going back to my original point, why would someone want to do that when, um, as the last 12 months, you know, can sh- shows us that ha- there has been an incredible issue um, and I guess sometimes health and safety risk that, that comes with it. So for someone who's listening to this uh, and they want to be an ally for the trans and gender diverse communities, they want to help support trans and gender diverse inclusion in sports, what kind of things can they do that would be most useful? You just can't wait to meet a trans person to start doing the work. And I don't mind calling it work because I think it is. It's a practice. It's education. It's it's a willingness and an openness that you do need. Allies need to remember that, like, learning a new language, you can't learn it in one day. You have to just take your time and you have to be consistent and you have to be aware of the privilege that you have as an ally. Don't try and speak over trans and gender diverse people, LGBTQ plus people at large. We can speak for ourselves. You need to be there to help open doors and support us when we need it every day. And that sounds like a large task. And I think when it's spoken about like in this sense, it it is like, but at the same time, there's little things that you can do, like correcting people when they mistake other people's pronouns, um, following through in that inclusion policy. If, if you know the policy, but it's not being enacted, then you need to help it be enacted, you know, um, and you just can't wait for trans people uh, or expect trans people or queer people to come into your sporting spaces and then do things. It needs to be done regardless of whether you know a queer person is there or not. Well, before we head across to Alex, Rudy, this project, Transathletica, it's out now, finally. Congratulations. Tell us all about where we can find it. Thank you. Yes. So you can watch the series exclusively on TikTok at transathletica.series and you can find extra content on our Instagram, which is the same, transathletica.series. And you're also like a pretty big deal on TikTok as well. Go on, like shout yourself out. So uh, I've got, well, I host Rainbow History Class, which is the queer and trans history you don't get in school. And that is Rainbow History Class on TikTok and my personal TikTok where you'll find everything other than queer trans history and other related LGBTQ plus items, uh, which is Rudy Jean Rigg.
Perfect. Well, let's head across to Alex now. Um, Alex, welcome in. You got a long history of sports, especially cricket. Can you give us a bit of the history of your involvement in sport? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in regional New South Wales. I'm an identical twin, one of four girls in my family. My parents um, supported us to have all sorts of sporting opportunities, but particularly um, broadening our experiences beyond what was sort of the gender norms at the time. So Kate and I, the twins at the end, we, we got opportunities to play soccer and cricket. And in country New South Wales, um, that was mostly boys playing. So we were the only girls in the team um, and often in the whole region playing um, the sport. Um, but Kate and I went on to play cricket for our country, uh, an amazing opportunity. The first identical twins to play cricket for Australia, male or female, and we were born in Wagga for some reason. There's lots of sporting talent that comes out of Wagga Wagga. And for me, I was um, fortunate enough to play for Australia for 15 years. I captained Australia to our first T20 World Cup win. I also captained in, in an Ashes Test match um, to victory as well. But I guess in, in terms of my sporting journey, it, one of the things I'm most proud of is I was the first uh, female international cricketer to come out publicly as gay. I did that in 2012. Um, I'm certainly not the first gay cricketer, but to be the first to feel safe enough to speak about that um, in an open forum, you know, is, is an important part of my story. I, I did uh, march in Mardi Gras as, a, as an out athlete along with Matt Mitchum and Daniel Kowalski and Jai Wallace. That was an amazing experience leading the Mardi Gras. Yeah, I, I've just recently released a book that describes my journey as as a gay athlete and and coming out in a in an environment which is sexist and homophobic and and that's the world of sport uh, it's improving but there's more work to do talk me through that time of of coming out um through sport what was that like for you yeah well coming out i, I met someone she happened to be a woman. Um, she's now my wife, Lindsay, and to, to share the joy of, of that relationship with my teammates and my family was, was pretty easy. And so, you know, I, I don't know that I really had a coming out moment within my immediate circles and the people that are really important to me. I'm very fortunate that I was well supported um, by my family and I know that that's not always the case. But to come out publicly is another thing altogether because I didn't feel that my sport sort of wanted that image of um, yet another gay women's cricketer, you know. It, it sort of um, my sport, as with other sports, have sort of battled with um, this idea of sexuality um, and particularly, you know, the fact that lots of um, gay women are attracted to playing sport and it's been a safe haven for them for a very long period of time. And of course, we want to get more gay males playing sport. But yeah, look, it was a bit of a risk to come out publicly. Um, and I did that in response to the homophobia I was experiencing within my sport. I, I didn't want to be a victim. I didn't believe the subliminal messages that I was getting that being gay is um, less desirable and not as good or there's something wrong with that. Um, I didn't believe that within myself and 
I didn't think that was a message we should be perpetuating for other young people because we want everyone to be welcome just as they are in sport because sport's just so good for us in terms of our mental and physical health, but importantly also our social connections. And uh, we, we know just how important that is after these COVID times and, and, you know, the restricted access to community events. Um, so sport is a really important part of the lives of many LGBTQI people and we want it to be a part of more people's lives because it's so healthy. You're also really closely involved with Pride in Sports. Now, for people who are not across what Pride in Sports is, could you talk us through it a little bit? Yeah, well, um, I just continue to be amazed by the work of ACON. Uh, Pride in Sport is one of three Pride Inclusion programs that ACON has, and there, there may be more now, but um, Pride in Diversity, which is about workplace inclusion for uh, LGBTQI people. ACON is helping workplaces be better at including people and, and ensuring they feel safe at work and can bring their whole selves to work. Pride in Sport, it, it's a not-for-profit sporting inclusion program that's specifically designed to assist sporting organisations at all levels with the inclusion of employees, athletes, volunteers and spectators uh, with diverse genders and sexualities. And if I was to pick a part of our society that's got the most work to do in that regard of including the rainbow umbrella, um, then I think sport's one of them. Uh, we, we, we know um, that sport's not particularly welcoming for that community, which ta- uh, you know, makes up such a huge slice of our population. Um, so it's a really important work that the Pride in Sport program is doing. Over 20 major sports organisations um, recently si- signed up their commitment to delivering trans and gender diverse inclusion policies. So that's one practical um, piece of work that Pride in Sport has helped our major sports with, you know, what is quite a complex area. Now, Alex, as a society, have we made substantial advances for LGBTQIA plus people in sports? Well, I think the evidence is out there with um, Josh Cavallo coming out while still playing on the field. Um, he plays for Adelaide United Um it's been a while since we've had an active footballer come out as gay. Um, Ian Roberts in 1994 perhaps was the last the last footballer to come out while playing. Um, so, you know, well done to Josh and, and the amazing sort of impact that will have on other gay athletes or just people in general, um, you know, showing um, that bravery and the pride in, in who you are is, is so important to any any person. And we saw it right around the world as well when that happened. Like he was fielding tweets from the official Manchester City account, from like all these huge like European clubs and even American clubs saying like, hey, man, good on you. Good stuff. Congratulations. Yeah, so amazing. Huge um, moment in sport. But we shouldn't forget that we've had so many out role models in women's sport um, which sort of gets overlooked and I think we need to celebrate the fact that uh, women's sport has been welcoming um, of difference for a very long period of time and, um, yeah, I just want to shout out to all those out role models across the sporting spectrum. Um, Josh has um, sort of joined those people. 
Uh, and yeah, it's it's just so marvelous to see that people are more and more um, free to be all of who they are. I think also we're seeing that so many sports are signing up to Pride in Sport and they're being competitive with each other to try and be the most inclusive sport for LGBTQI people. So we're at that point now that sports know that this is important. Um, it's an important part of their survival in the future because maybe it's 11% of our population, maybe it's m- many more than that. I think the data is showing that more young people are not identifying strictly as um, heterosexual um, these days. They're, they're much more fluid. Um, and so we've got to keep up with society and sports are getting on board. Well, let's bring Rudy in on this next question as well. The political debate around trans and gender diverse people in sports that has seen trans and gender diverse people really being used as a political football here, not the kind of sports context we were looking for. Rudy, what's your view on this whole situation? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Firstly, I don't think it's a debate really because playing sport is a human right. Um, And so, you know, just based on that, I don't think that we should be discussing whether a particular group of people should be able to participate in sport as their authentic selves. I think what we can debate is how our policies and culture exist to ensure that transgender and gender diverse people are safe and able to succeed in sport just like anyone else. You know, that's sort of the summation of what I've been kind of working on for the past year. I think that what Rudy speaks of there, um, we start from a position of inclusion and human rights and that the inclusion of trans athletes um, and and also intersex athletes, two slightly different um, topics, but the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, have themselves started to move towards that human rights basis of inclusion rather than the blunt instrument of testosterone levels um, to meet guidelines for inclusion. So, you know, I think Rudy's got a great point. Sport is for everybody and we just need to find a way to to make that a safe and and fair um, inclusion for everybody. And and it's not an easy thing to do. Sports are doing the work. Um, And I would say that um, politicians should get out of the way because sports have been doing this good work for a long period of time They've got the tools to do this quite difficult work, which is the IOC guidelines, the Sport Australia guidelines and the Sex Discrimination Act. Our Australian law gives us the tools for sports to be able to include um, diverse genders. Uh, So, yeah, politicians just should get out of the way really. Well, on that, while we're speaking to the politicians, what needs to be done to improve access to sports, specifically for the LGBTQIA plus community? Oh, look, I would just say that sports need to um, actively show that they're a welcoming space. You know, I've spoken to many sporting leaders and I've sat on sports boards and a lot of people are welcoming They've got inclusive sort of approaches individually, but as an organisation, it's important to consistently and authentically demonstrate that you're inclusive. And the question is, how do you do that? Um, You could do that through pride rounds. You could do that through policy development, um, creating rainbow um, fan groups. You know, there's lots of ways that sports can um, continue to support the inclusion of everybody. 
What do you think, Rudy? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, look, this is something that has come up a lot um, because obviously people are trying to be more inclusive and they are trying to learn. So the first thing that, you know, myself and the Transathletica team tell people is that, um, you know, when you're an ally, you need to be consistent and outspoken with your actions. You need to be having conversations with other allies that may know as much as yourself or may need that little bit of extra educating. You need to, you know, go out of your way almost to make safe space for future trans athletes. You can't wait for openly trans people or a person to turn up to a coaching session or social group to decide or to enact any change that you may have been thinking about. Um, having rainbow flags up on doors of stadiums and um, on your websites and things like that, that's a great first step. But that sort of actionable thing, those actionable things need to be taken past um, what is visible and it needs to sort of be within the culture all of the time. Well, just quickly to wrap this up, uh, I'm going to get this from each of you. What's your message for those young athletes who are afraid to come out? I want to start with you, Alex, on this. What do you think? What's your message? Yeah, look, I I was the first um, international female cricketer to come out publicly. So I guess, you know, uh, maybe speaking from a position of experience, but I would just say that to, to come out if and when it feels safe for you, uh, that, you know, it, it, we need to recognise it's not safe yet for everybody, um, that there's nothing wrong with you uh, and that your diverse um, and unique perspectives, um, that you can you can help guide and mentor other people and, and especially the older generation who didn't necessarily have um, the mentors that they need to navigate the world as it is today. So, you know, I think continue to be patient with these people, um, but be generous with your story. And at the end of the day, some people can't or won't change, um, and that's okay. Uh, they, they need not matter to you. But um, the majority of people in Australia are welcoming of you just as you are, and we know that, um, you know, through the recent debates, through the marriage equality debate, the majority are on your side. So um, go well and uh, be proud of who you are. Rudy, do you have a message you'd like to share for young athletes who are considering coming out? Yeah, I, I think coming out is for you. You know, it's, it's something for yourself. It's not something you do for other people. Um, You need to take your time and remember that there is sort of that initial balancing of outside pressures of coming out and then what you need to do for yourself to be yourself. Um, there's an amazing community waiting to welcome you when you're ready and they're, they're, they're there to welcome you in, you know, you're coming out to be welcomed into a community. And once you do that, you'll find your footing in time. Um, often it's, you know, once you come out, there's a lot of exploring that you do within yourself and within the community that you're finding yourself in suddenly. And so, you know, just enjoy it as much as you can and absolutely take all the time you need. I love that. I, I love that, Rudy. You're coming out to be welcomed in. How beautiful. I, I, I concur. <laughs> Thank you. And Dom, how about you? Um, I think the most amazing thing about coming out is it's the one thing that you control about your queer story. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. It doesn't have to be in 10 years. 
you control when you do it and when you want to do it, when you feel safe to do it, and when you feel comfortable in yourself enough to do it. Um, I think the worst thing that can happen is somebody takes it away from you. So use that power to tell your own story um, and you'll know when is the right time. Um, I know that's a really hard thing to understand, but like in your gut and in your heart, you do know when the right time is. So just go with your go with your gut and trust yourself because that's going to be a really amazing story when you choose to tell it. Well, Alex, Rudy, Dom, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Queer Thinking, presented by the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras in collaboration with Joy, Australia's rainbow community media organisation. If any of the topics covered in this episode have raised any issues for you, remember that support is available. For a list of LGBTQAA support services, visit mardigras.org.au and head to the support page. For more episodes of the Queer Thinking podcast and to check out upcoming Queer Thinking events, visit mardigras.org.au forward slash podcast.